Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Dr. Julia Feebig. Hi, Julia. Are you there? Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, and I thought we would start by you giving an introduction of who you are to our listeners, if you don't mind. Yes, sure. Of course. Um, well, let's see. I've, I'm a behavior analyst, um, and it, it's always such a funny question of who you are. and so contextual, but I'm a behavior analyst. I, uh, I teach uh, in the behavior analysis program at Ball State University, um, and I've been doing work in behavior analysis for almost 20 years now, which feels crazy to say, and um and I'm a musician and a traveler, and, you know, all of these things are influences. Um, and uh, I've been doing quite a bit of work in sustainability and, and uh, also uh, working with different organizations to build better team processes. Um, my history as a behavior analyst has has ranged widely. Um, I've had the privilege of working in education and special education in many different contexts over the years. And yeah, lots to say about that. Well, one of the things that I'm already thinking as you're starting to talk is you're right. It's it's all contextual. Like, like what makes you, you? And one of the things I had written down today in my notebook, be sure to ask Julia about her music. Because I love learning that about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, I mean, I think I think that probably actually will make a very good segue into the topic of, of me and behavior analysis as well. Um, so I can maybe tell that story. And uh, I, um, I, I learned violin from age five on and... Um, uh, to not make that too long of a story, what that resulted in was that um, I ended up, for university, I got into the Eastman School of Music at the University of Rochester. And as these things sometimes go, um, it ended up not being a great financial decision for my parents. I, I went to high school in Miami and um so I landed at the University of Florida, which, you know, changed my life in terms of what I ended up studying. So I was a music composition student there, and I'd started writing music probably in high school and writing and recording music. And one of the things that, that came up over and over was a lot of language around how talented people were, how talented I was, how talented the other students who were studying alongside me were. And the thing that, you know, as a late teenager at that point, I found very annoying was that all of those hours of practice didn't get talked about so much. And so somewhere in that, I got really interested in behavior. And, uh, you know, this was before Malcolm Gladwell's book where he wrote about 10,000 hours of practice and, and a couple other books in the same vein. And I looked up in the psychology department who worked on behavior change. 
And so I ended up emailing that guy. It happened to be Dr. Brian Iwata. And he emailed me back within a day or two and said, well, I have office hours. Why don't you come to those? We can talk about what you're interested in. And so I did. Um, And he met with me for 30, 45 minutes. And it led to me taking my first behavior analysis class. Um, I ended up taking every behavior analysis class I could get my hands on um, and uh, worked in in Brian Iwata's lab and in Tim Vollmer's lab with his students as a data collector. I ended up in the pigeon lab for a semester, um, TA'd for for Hank Pennypacker and took all the courses that that he was teaching. And... um, and then I remember, you know, music was still at the forefront, but um, I'm pretty practical, and it didn't seem like a very practical choice at the time. And so I really went full-fledged into learning about behavior analysis. And uh, and from there, um, I've always loved reading. And so I would spend Sundays in the medical library um, which was down the hill from the psychology department up at Shands Hospital. Um, and I read Java articles and behavior and social issues. I read everything I could. And then I would read, you know, what I found in the references. And so that was a re- I, it was serendipitous, the beginning of that. I, I think a lot of people... Um, gave me a lot of opportunities, and it really planted the seeds, I think, for for some further interests. One of those being my interest in sustainability and just really expanding where behavior analysis is applied and and really looking at bigger picture issues. I think that's something I gravitate to, and so that that desire was there. I know we were were chatting earlier. about about sustainability topics. And one of the really formative things I remember was this title for this 1990 Java article by Lehman and Geller, Where Have All the Flowers Gone?, which is, of course, also um, a part of a very famous song. And I remember reading that article about environmental protection and behavior analysis, and there were a few connected articles, and that really also had a huge impact on me in thinking about uh, what to do with this science and where to apply it. And um, I've had a bit of a winding road in, in that sense in terms of areas of practice and interests. But that was really the beginning. And I know your original question was about music. Um, that uh that has kind of continued on for me. I, I ended up um, continuing to write music, and I've recorded a couple albums, and I performed for many years uh, very frequently. And I don't perform quite as much as I used to anymore, but I still write, and I'm working on a new album this this year for the last couple months into next year. So um, that's never left, but... but you know, very serendipitously, music is what led me to behavior analysis. Well, and I don't think that many people 
have that story as their journey. I hear a lot of, I was going into teaching, or I'm my nephew, or I was out of school, or, you know, maybe they did wander into a lab or have the, the conversation with somebody who would later be so formative. But I find it really interesting, your connection between innate talent and repetition and practice. And I think that you very much connected the the behavior analytic kind of piece of that. Um, mm-hmm. Were you continuing to play music throughout school? Um, well, I was in the university orchestra. Um, originally, my I, my training was as a classical violinist, which uh, was something that I was a little bit obsessed with as a child. And I luckily had parents who listened and supported that. Um, but then I picked up uh, I picked up my mother's old guitar from her university days, which she actually didn't play. I did that as a teenager, and um, and I started writing. I taught myself guitar um, from some tape decks and and books, mostly folk music in the beginning, and then um, I ended up late in college performing guitar and singing. And when I left Gainesville, I had a bunch of musician friends in Tallahassee. And so I decided at the end of my bachelor's, I'm not going to be a behavior analyst. I'm going to go out there and play music. And I did do that. I, you know, Tallahassee is a lovely musical and artistic community, but it's not really where you make a living doing that. And um so I moved there, and I think within a couple months of moving there, while I was playing music, uh, I needed something else, and I ended up working with um, with Maxine Reese's group. Um, who she she passed away a couple of years ago, but um, I met with her, and she hired me, and I worked for behavior management consultants for about three years, and that is also uh, what paved the path to um, enrolling in the Florida State Behavior Analysis Master's Program that was in the early 2000s. And, um, and I really managed over, over those years to do both um, often. I'd, I had really good communities around me of, of musicians and of behavior analysts. So and then as the years have gone by, and probably it's not hard to imagine the professional responsibilities change, it's not so much at the forefront, but but it's certainly still my biggest reinforcer to try to try to keep at it and, and space for it and, and make time for it. Um, and I've got some really nice circles of people in Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco where I live where where that's just a thread that has continued for me. I love to hear about creativity and science together. I think we we've met or I know we met a while back at I think it was the Behavior Change for a Sustainable World Conference that I we first did. really Yeah, I first really remember connecting there. So sustainability mm-hmm. connecting us makes sense. And I'm not a musician, but I love to draw and to do art. I, I love the idea of things that seem very rigid and, you know, one plus one equals two. Uh, you know, behavior analysis um, sometimes has some pretty uh, clear formulas, but human behavior, of course, is, and, and animal yeah. behavior, too, is always so fluctuating. So it, it left that creativity 
part of me satisfied. Yeah, no, I I think I think there's a lot to that, those two things being linked. Actually, I mean, we we talk so much in the field of behavior analysis about the importance of dissemination and also expanding expanding applications and and I think that one of the key things in that in that happening is is creativity and also the courage that has to come with that right I mean songs don't get written because people are only following following formulas beautiful art doesn't get painted because people are only following formulas they they have practiced and they have learned the science behind the art, so to speak. And and I think the same thing is true in behavior analysis, in, in learning the science and, and learning the science not specific to one application, but learning the science so well and so fluently that then being able to flexibly apply it uh, across environments, across topics, across um, other industries and, and other areas of, of application and interest. Uh, creativity is needed in that um, as well. So I, I think in that sense, I found it very easy to, to relate those two areas of my life. So early on, I found that very, very difficult. I, I really had this feeling that I had to choose. And, um, and over the years, I have stopped feeling that way. And, and also, of course, the more invested you become in something, um, I stopped wanting to choose between those two areas of my life. Wow. So how did you get interested in that in your life and then blending them together? I uh, I have a father who chased us up mountains. You know, every mountain there was to hike, we did it. Um, and, uh, and, and just really a love of nature um, was, was just part of how I grew up. Those are the underpinnings of the interest. And and then I think beyond that, one one of the things that really, really appealed to me about behavior analysis was that I, I saw it as a way to address issues of justice, whether social justice, environmental justice, um, and I think really at the heart of our work and at our science is, is right working on socially significant behavior and, and really to create, at the heart of that, to create conditions that afford people dignity. And the sustainability piece, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, exactly the moment where I felt like this is the thing that we need to be working on. Um, I remember, as I mentioned earlier, reading some of those early articles, um, and you know, this was in the late '90s during during my college years, but that resonated for me. Um, that what I read in in behavior and social issues in that journal, um, and a lot of the work that that is represented there, that that really resonated with me. I remember being at an ABAI conference and 
it must have been around 2009 or 2010, and there was a panel um, that was addressing sustainability and behavior analysis. Mark Elavoshis was on that panel, a couple other people. And I had really been searching uh, when attending ABAI, which I, I think I've been to every ABAI since 2002 or three. And I had been searching in those conferences for um, other topics to be addressed um, to, for examples of that at those conferences and, and really looking for that um, because I'd been doing a lot of work uh, um, working with, with individuals with severe problem behavior, with, uh, with language learning needs. And I really liked doing that work, but I also was looking for expansion and, and something that felt really, really relevant to me in a bigger picture way. Uh, you know, I remember being in a room, it was a symposium, it was maybe a year later with Chris Wilhite, I think also Mark Alavosius and one other person. And at the end of that talk, I was sitting next to Ryan O'Connor, uh, who did his master's thesis um, on recycling behavior at the University of Houston Clear Lake. And we stood up and said, well, we ought to start a special interest group that's very specific to sustainability issues. And we ended up, probably about 20 of us that were in that symposium sitting in a circle in an empty room, skipping lunch, and talking about, well, what would this look like? What's needed? What would a special interest group um, that's really devoted only to this topic work on? Uh, and then shortly after that, about a year after that, Bill Heward spearheaded uh, the planning committee that you and I were both on for the Behavior Change and Sustainable World Conference in 2012, which ABAI sponsored um, for for a specific sustainability track conference. And I think all of those things happening, um, they just really solidified for me, this is what I want to be working on, right? And, and working on sustainability issues and climate change issues, it's not one specific thing. I mean, it's not news to anybody these days how, how complicated these issues are, how contextual they are based on, you know, where you're living geographically, based on your socioeconomic status um, and, and the access that you have or that you don't have to, to good food, to the resources to, to change your behavior, right, in terms of what kind of a consumer you are. And I, the list goes on and on and on. But I think all of those things happening so closely together in time, it gave me the push I needed also to, to say, you know, I love behavior analysis and, and I identify it as a behavior analyst. I want to make large scale, big impact. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't feeling like I was accomplishing that you know, up until that point. And, and I, I have a lot of days where I'm still not quite sure if I'm accomplishing that. But, 
but certainly it helps to be very engaged in in topics and issues that that are close to your heart and that are reinforcing to you and and in my case I think really feed a sense of you know wanting everybody to be okay and and not wanting to see people suffer and and really understanding that with this issue of climate change that people are suffering and people will suffer and we have this elegant beautiful science where there's so much promise you know that's not realized and i mean that was a very very long-winded answer but i but i think that that those are really the seeds of of how i connected behavior analysis to sustainability um and 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 then i guess another really big piece is that this is also <laughs> Most people who are not close to me don't really know about this, but I've also been working with an organization for about 20 years that was founded, a volunteer organization, and we put together children's camps, um, summer camps and summer projects, and that organization was founded over 70 years ago in Europe following World War II with the idea that if you put children from different nationalities and different backgrounds together early on in their life in a very structured way and you facilitate play and getting to know each other and having to live in a in a in a closed summer camp community for a summer that that is a way to to prevent and reduce strife and animosity and prejudice between people. And I was able to participate in that as, as a teenager um, for two years and then quickly moved into being a staff member and then a director. Um, and so that's also been a continuous thread in my life, uh, this idea of bringing people together and in spite of their different backgrounds to really facilitate a space where they can come together and, and create uh, an equitable community and a joyful community. And, um, and one of the principles of that organization is also simple living and, and really looking at how you're engaging with the environment you're in, not just the, the social environment, but the physical environment that you're in. And so I think all of that serendipitously came together or, you know, certain things were just more salient stimuli for me um, as I encountered them because of those early experiences. When I hear you talk about your journey, I think about connections I'm making, but also I think lessons for others. A lot of what you did was show up, you know, get involved, yeah. read, ask questions, meet people, communicate, share your ideas. I'm hearing and I'm thinking again about my own experiences. It's, it was being on that planning committee that taught me this is something I could be looking at professionally, mm -hmm. not just on mm -hmm. a personal level, right? And yeah. I'm also, you know, looking back at what the things that you've been saying, and it comes down to, you know, for the, for the students of behavior analysis who might be listening to multiple exemplars, right? How do we yes. program for generalization? <laughs> um, yes. How do we, you know, really understand the science? I mean, you're talking about applications to sustainability, applications to children, typically functioning children, intellectual disabilities, music, and 
that ability helps you, I think, see, you know, see ABA everywhere, potentially. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think also a, a thing to add there, especially in thinking about uh, newer behavior analysts, which, which I know you and I, from previous conversations, we both care about that deeply, right? The the development of the field and teaching and also maintaining just the integrity of the science and how it's applied. And, and I think listening back to myself, I, maybe some of that sounds a little too easy, but I think one of the key things uh, that I still work on is being, being okay with being uncomfortable, right? None, none of, none of this, going out into the world and, and finding other ways to connect and apply behavior analysis is fairly comfortable. It's, I, I remember at the Behavior Change and Sustainable World Conference in 2012, there were some, it, it was such a nice experience, the planning process, and then being in, at that conference and attending the different talks and we had brought in Peter Karieva uh, from the Nature Conservancy, and then there were some some people working at Ohio State on environmental issues that gave talks, and it was just a really nice mix of people who all cared about the same issue. And I decided that year, for for the two years following, I really made it a priority to step out of going to as many behavior analysis conferences. And, and over the two years after that, I went to the Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change Conference, which I've been to almost every year since and presented there and met wonderful people uh, working in, in the energy field and working with NGOs, working in food waste and forestry. Um, and I also went to the... Um, the Environmental Education Conference and uh, what is it called? The North American Association for Environmental Education Conference. I also went to um, the Association for Contextual Behavior Science Conference, which I've continued to go to almost every year. And all of that was so uncomfortable. You know, I felt I felt like I was fresh out of undergrad at, at my first ABAI conference, again, except for at the ABAI conferences, I actually knew a couple people. Um, and at all of these conferences, I didn't know anyone. You know, I'm generally a, a pretty shy person. I have loads of coping mechanisms that, that, you know, I think probably make me sound very at ease talking with people that I don't know yet. And it really... It was really a push, you know, to in spite of to identifying this is the thing that I value, doing this work, and also understanding this topic, right? It's not just about understanding behavior analysis well. If there's an area you want to work in, I think you have the obligation to educate yourself about that area. It's not going to help to walk in and say, I can help because I understand how to change behavior, you have to understand how to change behavior in context of that environment. And for, for many of us in the field working in special education, working with individuals 
with autism, I don't think we would ever, ever dream of walking into those situations and thinking that we would do a good job without knowing something about autism, without understanding child development. If you're working in schools without understanding something about special education law, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so I think that really, those two years after, after that Behavior Change for a Sustainable World Conference really were, were very life-changing for me because I stepped out of the stream and, uh, and you know, got really uncomfortable, and, and which has been pretty wonderful in the process, the people you meet and the things you learn, and, and it takes you to places that, that you could never have imagined. Yeah. I remember sitting in the lobby of Ohio State, I think, where the conference, Behavior Change Sustainable Work Conference was held or, or in that area. And I was sitting with a friend of mine, Molly Benson. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this other woman was, you know, sitting in the lobby area with us. And we start talking to her and she's here for the conference and we're here for the conference and we're going back and forth. And then she I had just made the assumption, right, because I had surrounded myself with behavior analysts at a lot of behavior analytic conferences, and she was in energy and, you know, environmental sciences. And I'm glad she said that before my assumption was communicated because Mm -hmm. then we spent, I mean, I think we almost missed the next session. We spent so much time just learning and so curious and inquisitive, and it was was inspiring and and I think really – feeds into that create creativity. One of the questions I have for you um, when you talk about going to these situations where you're learning, you're uncomfortable, but I imagine other people there don't really know what behavior analysis is or maybe they do to some extent. How do you go about starting that conversation and how do you go about explaining or introducing what you do um, or where mm-hmm. you, some of your roots, I guess, not what you do because you do so much. but Yeah. Um, I would say that I actually don't do a lot of explaining. I do a lot of listening and asking questions. So I really, maybe it sounds really mundane to say, but I, I do the same thing that I would do if I'm trying to figure out what's the root cause of the issue here, right? It, it's that curiosity of wanting to know the story, Um it's the same thing that, that we would do if we have to conduct a functional analysis, you know, of, of a child's behavior. We have to find out the story first. We have to get the context. We have to find out what matters to them, what matters to their family or what matters to their teacher. And and so I think in those situations, the starting point is, is a curiosity around who are you and and why are you here? What matters to you? What's your work in? Rather than taking an approach of announcing what my work is in and what I'm interested in, right? Um, and, and I think I generally try to follow that principle because it also gives me an idea of are there connecting points here? Is there a way that I can help? And what's my starting point, right? Because I'm not going to start waxing poetic about behavior analysis if that's not even a concept for someone. 
I'm going to choose a different starting point. It's a shaping process. So I think the, those are, that's probably the biggest starting point. And also, it's just not that hard if you have shared interests. You know, if, if I care enough to show up to a conference that has sustainability or climate change in the title, or even behavior in the title, and all these other people are showing up there too, we already have some shared ground. We already have some shared values. And so those conversations are, are really not that difficult if you put yourself in, in the context, in the right context. I think one of the other things that, that continues to be eye-opening has also happened along the way where, you know, I've gone from just attendee to then also presenter over the years at these conferences. And that also really helps start a dialogue and, and it gives the opportunity to share what is behavior analysis and, and why does it matter. I um, very recently in November uh, gave a talk at the Behavior Energy and Climate Change Conference in Sacramento and I gave a talk on how pro-social principles and organizational behavior management matter in the fight against climate change, that, that we have to be able to work well in teams, in our organizations and in our communities, whether that has to do with mitigation or it has to do with, with prevention. And one of the things that happened there was this wonderful dialogue, right, um, during the question and answer part of that talk. And then also having people come up and talk to me about these things, people who are working in, you know, places like the Environmental Protection Agency, working for different NGOs, working for different governmental and, and private organizations and utility companies doing work in this area. Um, and then we also gave a workshop um, as part of the uh, – I have had – the, uh, the great privilege, and it's also a good deal of fun, of working on the Climate Change Task Force for the Coalition of Behavior Science Organizations, which includes ABAI and ACBS and a handful of other organizations. And we gave a three-hour workshop at the SPEC conference, and the workshop was focused around teaching research design, so getting away from randomized control trials. And we focus specifically on multiple baseline designs. And then we're able to have dialogue and, and brainstorm with people that attended. How in your organization could you apply this? And what are, the, what are the outcomes you're going for? And then let's really parse out how to define the target behaviors that need to be addressed first or the systems that need to be put in place. And nobody in that room had ever heard of a multiple baseline design, but these are well-versed, sharp people who are committed to making big changes in this area. And it was, I think it was eye-opening for everyone in the room, us as presenters, right? And, and, and facilitators and also for the workshop attendees just about what we can offer each other. Um, 
And the starting point is always having the commitment to, to those same values, to, to act in, in the interest of those values. And so I think for me, that starting that conversation, which with your original question, with showing up to the places where people want to have those conversations, rather than hoping that they'll come to me. <laughs> well, I can tell you that my waitress at the restaurant doesn't always want to have the conversation, and nor does the, you know, the person standing next to me at the bus stop. I think that you're very much astute into saying, like, go to a place where the gathering is already occurring and and, and be a part of that environment. That's, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a little simplified. Yeah. You did it much more elegantly. Um, but I think you've also done a really nice job, Julia, of sharing with, with me and with listeners about what that could look like. And it doesn't seem like a linear path, which is kind of nice and comforting and mm-hmm. relatable. I sort of bounce all over and, and kind of... Yeah, for sure. <laughs> keep yourself absolutely. in that core. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's an understatement, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I want to thank you for sharing, you know, everything you've shared so far. And, and you've mentioned some articles and some conferences. But I'm wondering if you could maybe highlight um, some of your favorites or some resources for others who might be listening. Yes. So I mentioned the Behavior and Social Issues Journal, uh, which I think is one of my favorite journals uh, when it comes to Uh, behavior analysis and behavior science. And so if listeners are not familiar with that, I would really recommend getting familiar with the work uh, documented there. Um, I also mentioned the Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change Conference, uh, which if you go to beck.org, you'll learn all about that conference. Um, It happens once a year and alternates between Sacramento and the Washington, D.C. area. Um, I'm trying to think. I also mentioned the um, North American Association for Environmental Education. That is a conference that I went to twice. Um, I think that is a great conference for people who are working in schools. Um, and, you know, maybe are working in schools doing clinical educational work, but see some opportunities to reduce the food waste happening in the cafeteria. If you've ever walked into an elementary, middle, or high school, it is um, painful to see. So I think that that would be a great conference if, if you're working in that area and thinking about you know, what small thing could I do without giving up my job and saying I'm going to go work on sustainability, right? Because it's not about that either. And I don't have the website for that, but I think if you Google that, it'll pop right up. And let's see. I also mentioned the Association for Contextual Behavior Science Conference, which I believe that's contextualscience.org. Org. I might be getting that wrong off the top of my head. Um, I've also found that conference to be uh, really helpful and formative. Um, 
in terms of connecting with people who who care about sustainability. That's, I would say, a very small uh, portion of, of attendees who are doing work in that area, but also really diving into that part of behavior analysis where you're looking at your values, other values, um, wanting to learn about acceptance, commitment, therapy, and training, and relational frame theory, which I know we didn't get into here, but um, I think that's also a really big part of of doing work where you're going out and, and trying to work with people and collaborate with people who are working in very different areas. I think that, I think that's the sum of what maybe what I've mentioned in terms of helpful links. I will take it upon myself to add those links or, or make sure that people can access those links. Yeah, um, and I so can send you an email with with that information too. That Perfect. Helps. Reducing mm-hmm. my response effort definitely increases yeah, the likelihood exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. it will end up where it needs to go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, Julia, I really, as always, enjoyed talking with you, but today having the opportunity to share our conversation and we've really, we've uh, approached so many different, different aspects of behavior analysis, science, values, human, uh, just the human condition, if you will. Um, and it's really been quite a joy. I just want to say thanks and, um, yeah. you know, any last shout outs or anything you want to add, feel free to, to go ahead and do that there. Yeah, I mean, I I always love hearing from people um, and and hearing about what they're doing in terms of sustainability work or what they're interested in doing. I think this work is really a community effort, and and so with that in mind, I I'd like to give a shout out to the Coalition of Behavior Science Organizations Climate Change Task Force. We have been uh, doing quite a bit of work and have a website that will be up and running soon. Um, Andrew Bonner, who's a, a graduate student at the University of Florida, has, has really been putting a lot of effort into that over the last month. And um, and we have a really wonderful group working together on that with Tony Biglin and Holly Senek. I hope I'm not saying her name wrong. And uh, Jess Morton, Tiffany Duboke, Magnus Johansson, um and uh so i if you're interested in in this work look out for those things on the abai uh website and on the acbs website there are special interest groups uh in abai um interested in doing work in this area there's the bass sig which i'm looking for someone to help me get a new website up and running so any of you listeners out here email me at jhfebig which is j-h-f-i-e-b-i-g at gmail.com i'd love help with that and then there's also really wonderful work being done by the behaviorist for social responsibility special interest group as well um, and I would encourage people to to look up all of those things and um, and reach out. I mean, I think I think we have to band together as a community and and really mobilize our resources and our efforts to make an impact in this in the area of climate change as behavior analysts. 
Yeah, I think, you know, we all owe it to ourselves and each other. And you've helped us figure out ways in which it sounds and seems doable to start. I mean, listening is hard for some of us, but it's an easy place Mm -hmm. to start. You know, getting involved and listening to others and learning seems Mm -hmm. to be pretty consistent with, you know, I think all behavior analysts have this thirst for learning or I don't know we would have made it this far. Um, Thank you again, Julia. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and I I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share some of these things. Always nice to be able to talk about the things you care about, so thank you. Of course. And I'll upload all the information that Dr. Fiebig has mentioned for us today, and if you're interested in checking that out, you can do so at www.behaviorbabe.com. Mm-hmm.